from PowerlineBlog.com. This is Powerline with John Hinderocker, Scott Johnson, Paul Mirengoff, and Stephen Hayward. Welcome to the second edition of Powerline. And once again, we've got the entire crew assembled tonight. And it's on kind of a historic occasion. It is the day after uh, Barack Obama's uh, triumphant, I think it's fair to say, announcement of his executive decrees to uh, revise and in part repeal our, uh, our immigration laws. Those of you with stronger stomachs than mine who actually watched Obama last night, what, what did you think of the presentation? Well, I'll start, John. It's Steve. Uh, I'd be careful, by the way, of saying it's a historic occasion of the day after Obama does something wrong, because that's almost every day. Uh, and if we, you know, we could be very busy if we tracked every historic occasion he does something wrong. Uh, here's the odd thing about this, I think. Uh, you know, uh, the heart of this appears to be, and I haven't read the fine print yet, that he's going to use the executive branch's prosecutorial discretion to not process 5 million deportations or 5 million people who would otherwise be uh, uh, legally uh, vulnerable to deportation. Well, that was not going to happen anyway, right? I mean, yeah. we're not... You does, know, this we're, mean that we, does this mean that we get to deport the other 7 million? <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's right. That's another Apparently way of thinking not. about it, right? And uh, Exactly. I mean, I, we hear that deportations are at record numbers, but, you know, that number doesn't have to be very large to be record numbers, and relative to the total pool, it's still pretty tiny, right? Uh, and in return for this, the uh, the folks who are going to be given this executive amnesty, for one thing, it's temporary. It can be undone by a future president. Uh, but they're supposed to register and sign some paperwork and whatnot. Well, who's going to want to step out of the shadows, so so to speak, and register for something that could be undone in a few years? I, I think, um, I mean, I always thought this was about politics and was a cynical maneuver. Uh, but it's even worse than it looks, I think, if you look at the fine print of the thing. So maybe the saving grace is that, uh, that, that, that it won't work, that, that not a lot of people will, in fact, uh, sign up. That could be right, but I mean, the calculation, I suppose, from Obama's point of view, is you've curried favor with the Hispanic vote, which is probably more up for grabs than people think. At least that's what's terrifying Democrats. You know, if they if they don't get 60 percent or 70 percent of the Hispanic vote, they've got a big problem going forward. So they're trying to lock it down with this. Uh, and I suppose their calculation is it doesn't matter if the policy works. Uh, they have uh, uh, expressed their compassion. I mean, we'll talk to Bill Vogley later in the broadcast about the whole problem of liberal compassion. Uh, and maybe that's what this is all about. It's just that simple. You know, some of us care about uh, legality. The Democrats uh, often don't. But a number of people have asked me the question, is there any merit to the legal theory that uh, the Obama administration is using? That is that this is all just a, what, a massive instance of prosecutorial discretion. Uh, Paul, Scott, what do you think about that? The thing that struck me about this is that this is a case where Obama has crossed his own red line. Um, he spoke articulately and pretty eloquently about the unconstitutionality of what he has just done on 20-plus occasions over the last four years. And when he spoke last night, he never mentioned any of that. It was kind of a down-the-memory-hole situation. He's condemned by his own words, it seems to me, to a greatest, great extent, and uh, it seems to me that what has transpired is unprecedented in that ex uh, to that extent. He has crossed uh, constitutional red lines that he'd previously marked out himself without any explanation. 
and I don't think the prosecutorial discretion argument hold mu- holds much water. That normally that arises in the context of of an individual who, for some special reason, ought not to be prosecuted. Uh, an, an illegal immigrant who came here um, under under extreme duress. Uh, actually, Congress <laughs> allows for those exceptions anyway. But normally, that prosecutorial discretion discretion is a kind of an individualized notion. It doesn't apply to millions and millions and millions of people. It can also be a matter of use of resources. That's probably the, you know, the, the better argument. But again, I don't, I don't think that would hold water. And when, it, when it, the argument extends to basically nullifying the purpose or, or the actual uh, meaning of a statute, I don't think you can rest that on prosecutorial discretion. And as Scott said, Obama himself didn't believe it uh, in 2011, 2012, or even I think he made some of these pronouncements in 2013. Well, I think it's a ludicrous argument from a legal standpoint. You know, I, I wrote in a post earlier today that the Democrats have to be a little bit careful because this is a game that Republicans really, if they wanted to, could play more effectively than than Democrats. I mean, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to see a Republican uh, president suspend the enforcement of certain environmental laws, for example, or or stop uh, stop enforcing the uh, corporate income tax. Uh, that would be a wonderful move, I think, from an economic standpoint, or or even something as simple as getting rid of the the double taxation on repatriated profits. Uh, just cease all enforcement of, of of that aspect of of the tax laws. The Democrats would howl and and certainly would not accept the proposition that that is merely an exercise of prosecutorial discretion. You know, I, I think it's a ridiculous argument. Yeah, they could just call it the Obama precedent every time they did it. I think that would be the thing, the slogan you would use. Well, I think the so, Democrats are banking on the notion that they can win that they can win the presidency, especially if they keep if they, if they get more and more Latino votes. And it is true that uh, recent history suggests that the Democrats can win the presidency more easily than they can control Congress, especially, you know, given the fact that to have real control of Congress, you have to have a supermajority. But given that we all agree, and I think almost everybody agrees that this is an illegal, unconstitutional usurpation, the real question, I suppose, is what are the Republicans going to do about it? What, what, what can they do about it? What, what do you guys think is the, is the right strategy? Well, uh, sort, sort of an all-of-the-above strategy, I think, uh, probably, given the fact that there's no one single component to it that seems likely to work. By all, I, I, don't, I don't mean all of the above in the absolute sense. I think uh, impeachment should be off the table. I think uh, a, a government shutdown or a partial shutdown of the, the nature that we had last time should be off the table. But, you know, f- sort of that full use of power of the purse to try to pr- prohibit or prevent funding of, of the bureaucrats that are going to be issuing these papers, um, probably a very hard line on presidential nominations. And, uh, and and judicial challenges from both Congress, uh, the states, two of which I think have already said they're going to challenge it, and uh, you know as many good private plaintiffs who might have standing as can be rustled up. You know we're going to be talking with Tom Cotton about this a little bit a little bit later and his getting his thoughts uh, thoughts on it. Uh, to me, it seems that the most effective thing that the Republicans can do. Once they take possession of the Senate in January, which of course is not far off at this point, is to uh, enact legislation uh, that says that the executive branch can't spend any money to carry out 
these uh, these immigration policies. And that actually, it seems odd to me, but that actually has worked. I mean, in the case, for example, of Guantanamo Bay, where Congress has prohibited spending money to, to bring prisoners from Guantanamo to, uh, to the U.S. And... Um, isn't isn't that uh, and I agree with you, Paul, that, that they should do more than that. They should go. They should be very tough on nominations and so forth. But in terms of actually stopping this effort in its tracks, isn't that the best way to do it? I think so. Very various uh, uses of the power of the, the purse. The problem is, I think you know Obama will you know find a way to. Uh, well, first of all, he can he can he can veto. Um, you know, affirmative legislation and, and the Democrats in the Senate can block, they still have enough votes to block presumably much of that legislation. But secondly, I think he can probably, you know, if it's not a complete um, foreclosure of funding, he, they can rustle up the money through users, user fees and whatnot, be, be even would only add to the illegality and perhaps make a, make for a stronger court challenge, but I'm not sure, I don't, and I don't really know legislative process well enough to have a definitive opinion, but I'm not really confident that it would work. You know, th- th- that, that, that plan, as, as I just laid out, and Paul, you've laid it out in a post on Powerline, others have talked about it, we'll talk with Tom Cotton about it here shortly, it assumes that now Congress just does a short-term continuing resolution that funds the government until you know, January, February, whatever. And at that point, you get more major spending bills, and this prohibition is attached as a rider to, to one of those major spending bills so that if Obama wants to veto it, um, you know, it's going to be a big problem. And I learned today from a very, very well-placed source in Washington that it just seems incredible to me, but, but that the biggest obstacle to, to executing that plan right now now is the Republicans on the House Appropriations Committee. Apparently, the Republicans, or a lot of them, I'm not saying all of them, but the leadership of the, of the Republicans on the House Appropriations Committee are so anxious to get long-term spending bills in place uh, to, to pay off favors to campaign contributors or whatever you know that motivation is, that um, it's taking a lot of arm twisting to get them to accept the idea of a short-term continuing resolution uh, so that um, this prohibition on the on the illegal uh, amnesty can be added once Republicans control the Senate, I, isn't that just almost unbelievable? It's disgraceful. I mean, we're, we're going to need we're going to probably need uh, to have the power of the purse hanging over the president. Not not just on this issue. I and mean, who knows what Obama is going to do by executive order? You know, come come February, uh, this has to be a, a sword hanging over. Obama's head for, for for more reasons than just immigration. Right. Why would Republicans even even contemplate passing a long term spending measure that has to get through Harry Reid's Senate? Uh, well, it's not called a stupid party for nothing, you know. <laughs> yeah, it is mind-boggling to contemplate. I mean, it, this is um, – I don't know if maybe the problem is – well, there's, there's a lot of sources of it. Uh, one is is that a lot of Republican politicians are just ordinary politicians and not that dedicated to principle, or they get used to being spenders, right? There's a lot of empirical evidence over the years that even conservative members of the House, the longer they're there, the more comfortable they get spending more and more money. Because as uh, Congressman Tom McClintock, old friend of mine, likes to say, these are amigo uh, numbers. My eyes glaze over, right? And, you know, what's an extra $100 million 
or $100 billion and a big appropriation bill or continuing resolution when it benefits a, an industry or your state or so forth. And uh, in an odd way, I think I'm going to write an article on this fairly soon. I actually think there's a case for bringing back earmarks, which were badly abused, but bringing them back in a big way. And the idea being, let's make Congress actually mark up and earmark the entire budget in great detail. And so you not only then target the funding and, and dictate the spending and really use the power of the purse the way it's meant of the, uh, you know, the immigration business, but you know, you'd also, uh, I think, write line items in the budget for the Centers for Disease Control, for example, which was caught flat-footed on Ebola. And they went out and complained that, oh, we didn't have enough funding. Uh, well, it turns out that uh, the CDC had spent money on things like uh, uh, investigating whether gun violence was uh, a public health hazard like an infectious disease. I think you'd want specific language prohibiting that kind of nonsense at the CDC. They had a website set up about a year ago at the CDC. I wrote about this on our site, I think, uh, uh, that was about what we could learn from the zombie apocalypse. It was, you know, a little PR stunt that probably didn't cost much money, but it ought not to, you know, but somebody had to spend time doing that. And so it costs something, and that's just stupid. And I, I think that what you really ought to make Congress do is really take ownership of the budget in great detail. Maybe that's unrealistic. I'm, I'm trying to talk to some friends of mine who know budget stuff in great detail and ask them their opinions about all this. Uh, but I think maybe the answer to the appropriators uh, uh, is to say, all right, if you're really going to do this, let's really go big and you know, let's make the budget three times bigger than it is, not in dollar terms, but in pages and detail. Well, on that so, note, let's, let's – yeah, go ahead. So, one quick last point. Let's not forget that a lot of these House Republicans favor, as a substantive matter, what Obama has done. And big business, uh, I think, also favors it. So, you know, that may be the answer to your, ah, to your question. Yeah, right. Drive down the wages. Well, from the zombie apocalypse, let's, let's uh, now <laughs> bring in uh, Senator-elect Tom Cotton. We recorded this interview with, with uh, Tom Cotton yesterday, just shortly before President Obama's speech, as, as you'll hear here uh, momentarily. But th- we did then go on to talk about what the Republican strategy uh, should be in, in opposing this initiative. So now we're going to be joined by uh, Senator-elect Tom Cotton. Congressman Tom Cotton, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. It's always great to join you. Tom, you're going to be a senator in, in January, and you won that Senate race going away by, what was it, something like 20 points? Uh, not quite. We won by 17 points, uh, 57 to 40, I think, was the final tally. But obviously a huge victory. Was- hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Your in- internal polling showing you that that far ahead. Uh... What happened there? I would say that our polling was accurate, although it never had quite that big a lead. Um, our polling for a year and a half showed Mark Pryor uh, always stuck around 40 to 42 points. Um, we typically had about a three to four point lead. Uh, by the, say, Labor Day period, that had increased up to about six. And then by October 15th, halfway through October, it had increased to around uh, 10 or so. And we saw that consistently in our tracking polls in the final week of the campaign. We can't poll every night. And then the rest of the undecided broke the way their earlier brothers and sisters had broken. That put us at about a 14 or 15-point lead. And then our turnout operation was clearly superior to what the Democrats had if you look at the county-by-county breakdown. And that ended up adding another two or three points to our margin. So in the the end, we never had a poll that showed us up 17, but our polling was moving in that direction as the undecideds in Arkansas were moving against Senator Pryor because of his support for the Obama agenda. The better turnout operation, that's music to our ears. Was that something that was unique to your campaign, uh, Congressman, or do you think the Republicans generally did better this year? Republicans did a lot better all around the country uh, on turnout this year. You know, in in Arkansas, we went from having about 780,000 voters four years ago in our last midterm to have almost 100 or 850,000. So, you know, that's an increase uh, of nearly 10 percent. And the biggest increases were in our counties. Mark Pryor won 12 counties. They only turned out 98% of their 2010 votes. So they actually declined from the last midterm, not just the last presidential election. I won 63 counties, and we had 105% of the 2010 turnout in those counties. Even more notable, in the 10 largest counties I won, we had 120% of the 2010 turnout. Uh, So we benefited from an enthusiastic uh, voter base, but as well as from very hardworking young people and volunteers and activists uh, who were given the very best data and technological tools to identify our voters and get them out to the polls. I don't think your win is hard to explain. Uh, I I think you pretty obviously suit Arkansas better than Mark Pryor. But but beyond that kind of basic fact, is there any one factor, issue, whatever, that you would point to as being a a factor in, in that big win? Well, you know, Barack Obama said it best. His policies were on the ballot. Uh, and in Arkansas, those policies went by the name of Mark Pryor. In other states, they went by the name of Mark Udall or Kay Hagan. And those incumbent senators who supported Barack Obama more than 90% of the time went down to defeat. Um, the president and some of his allies are saying that they had a communications problem or they had an enthusiasm problem. And they may have had those as well. But what they really have is a reality problem. There's been a lot of water under the bridge over the last two years since his reelection. You've had the IRS targeting scandal. You've had the Obamacare website meltdown. You've had people paying double for their insurance premiums or quadruple for their insurance deductibles. You've had the Islamic State rampaging across the Middle East, Iran engaging in sham negotiations as they rush towards a nuclear weapon. The real problem the president has is that his policies are failing, and those failures are manifest, especially in a rural state like Arkansas. 
Let's shift gears, Tom, and talk a little bit about the uh, the speech that President Obama is going to give tonight. He's obviously going to announce some kind of executive decree on on illegal uh, immigration. Have have you and other House Republicans been been uh, talking about this, planning a response? Uh, what can we look for? We've consulted extensively in both the House of Representatives and now in the Senate as well about the president's expected executive action on immigration. Uh, as you all know, I have been a staunch opponent uh, of the Senate's amnesty legislation, uh, which would also double or triple the number of um, guest workers and visas that we're giving out uh, for immigrants to come here to work. Uh, I've also staunchly opposed the president's executive action. But the best advocate against the president and what he's going to do tonight is not me. It's not any other Republican Congress. It's himself. I mean, Barack Obama for years was saying that he does not have the legal authority to do what he proposes to now do, not simply protect from deportation a class of several million illegal immigrants, which, frankly, he wasn't going to do to begin with, but also take the active step of issuing them photo IDs and taxpayer identification numbers and work permits. Um, so all you have to do is get video clips of Barack Obama from 2011 or 2012 or even 2013 to see the very best case against what President Obama is doing tonight. And the Congress, whether it's here in the lame duck session or perhaps more likely, given the Republican majorities in the new Congress, will, I suspect, use uh, every tool in our uh, constitutional toolbox to try to protect the rule of law and to protect the American worker from President Obama's lawless actions. We sure agree with you that, that what he's doing here is, is illegal and unconstitutional, but I think the real question is what are the Republicans going to do about it? One of the proposals that we hear is that they pass legislation that would prohibit uh, spending money, prohibit funding to implement um, whatever, whatever this amnesty consists of. Is that something that we can expect to happen? That is certainly one possibility. The best example of this in recent times is uh, the bar on uh, the use of funding to transfer terrorists from Guantanamo Bay. Uh, for six years, the president has wanted to close our detention facility at Guantanamo Bay and move those hardened terrorists to U.S. soil. For six years, a bipartisan majority in the Congress has passed a military spending bill every year so our troops get paid and our operations get funded, yet also barred the president from using any of those funds to transfer a terrorist to the United States. And the president has accepted that constraint. If it, we can do it there, as we, we as a Congress for 226 years have done it under our Constitution, there's no reason we can't do it to stop the president from using taxpayer dollars to actively disregard the law. It's, it can be hard to make the president enforce the law when his, it's just the passive refusal, which is to deport immer, illegal immigrants when they're detained for one reason or another. But it's a horse of a different color when he is actively using taxpayer dollars to print work permits or to generate taxpayer identification numbers. And I suspect that would be one response we'll have in addition to oversight hearings, in addition to potential, potentially having consequences for the confirmation of his nominees to the executive branch and the federal bench. In our system of checks and balances, when the president oversteps his authority as badly as he is about to, the Congress has to stand up for their prerogatives, which is really just to say, stand up for the liberty and the interest of the American people. Tom, uh, raising the notion of um, 
blocking judicial nominees um, leads to the, the whole question of whether the filibuster ought to be reinstated. Some Republicans, Lindsey Graham, for example, have talked about moving the number required back up to 60. The advantage being that it would make it extremely difficult for, for Obama to confirm radical judicial appointees. The disadvantage being that it might come back to haunt Republicans if uh, the Republicans get the White House and the Democrats get the Senate back. Have you have you given any thought to uh, to that issue, whether to raise the uh, reinstate the filibuster? I've given it some thought. I haven't reached a considered judgment yet. Uh, we, as a new Republican majority, will have a meeting next month where we specifically focus on this question. And obviously, there are many senators who have been around and seen various uh, configurations of the majority and the minority. And I want to hear their viewpoints, and I want to keep an open mind on it. My instincts, though, are we should not create a double standard that says when a Democratic president is in office. He gets his judges confirmed with 50 votes, and a Republican president has to get 60 votes for his judges. Uh, I don't think Harry Reid and the Democrats should have changed the rules in the middle of the game if they thought that this was a wise policy move for the proper functioning of our Senate and for the relationships between the Senate and the executive branch. It should have been considered you know, right before an election when we don't know who's going to be in power or at the beginning of a Senate session, but certainly not changed in the middle of the game. Now, though, you can't unring the bell, and I certainly don't want to see a double standard created uh, that makes it harder to confirm conservative judges to the courts and easier to confirm liberal judges to the courts. When you uh, come back in January, of course, you'll be now a member of the uh, of, of the Senate. And I assume that Republicans in both the Senate and the House uh, have got ideas about legislation that they want to move early in the next term to show the voters who put them in office that they're they're taking constructive steps uh, to try to improve the economy and so forth. Did, can you give us any kind of a preview, Tom, of what, what some legislation along those lines might be? Sure, John. And actually, the preview of what the Senate is apt to do in the first months of the new year is really a review of a lot of the bills the House of Representatives has passed that have languished in Harry Reid's Senate. And a lot of those will be focused on putting people to work. If you look in our uh, energy sector, for instance, we've passed legislation that would expedite the construction of the Keystone Pipeline, that would expedite and uh, ease the, the leasing and permitting for exploration and uh, production of oil and gas on federal lands or federal waters that would expedite the construction of export facilities for liquefied natural gas. So you have gas fields in places like Arkansas that are getting back online so we can ship to our allies in places like Ukraine, which also strengthens our position around the world. Or if you look at some of the consequences Obamacare has had in uh, our economy, you know, it's caused a lot of people to lose hours because it moved the definition of a work week from 40 hours to 30 uh, hours a week. We want to see that restored to 40 hours. John, in your state, uh, Minnesota, which depends so heavily on the medical device industry, a tax on medical devices is crushing innovation uh, and growth in that very valuable industry. We have some in Arkansas. We have a lot of patients, though, who depend on those uh, new kinds of innovation. We want to see that tax repealed. You know, we've passed legislation in the House that would delay uh, or even repeal the tax penalty on individuals who can't afford an Obamacare plan or the tax penalty on businesses who can't afford to provide an Obamacare plan. We would like to pass those bills into law to protect our constituents from the most immediate harms of the law. Some of these, I think the president would be hard-pressed to veto because he's already done them as a executive 
action on a temporary basis. But uh, I think so. I think he'll sign some. Some he may veto, but you know if that happens, that's the nature of our constitutional system, and that means that it will become an issue in the presidential campaign in two years. Now, everything you just listed there sounds like a good idea to me. Uh, but doesn't that bring up once again the question of the filibuster? We'll have uh, presumably 54 senators uh, will be Republicans. But uh, do you expect the, the Democrats in the Senate to to try to block a lot of what you just listed? John, in the, in the House of Representatives, most of the bills that I just mentioned passed with a pretty substantial bipartisan uh, majority. You know, we got several dozen Democrats to vote with us. In the Senate, we don't need several dozen Democrats. We only need six Democrats to vote with a united Republican caucus to uh, finish a filibuster. I actually think for a lot of those measures, though, we won't get 60 votes. We could get 65 or 70 votes. Um, and frankly, I think there's a lot of Democratic senators who either had a near-death experience two weeks ago, like Mark Warner from Virginia or Gene Shaheen from New Hampshire, or who are going to have to be on the ballot in 2016 or 2018 from states that, frankly, right now are trending in a Republican direction. And there's nothing like an election to send the right signal to the Democratic senators who have been so obstructionist for so long. So it sounds like you think that uh, some of those Democratic senators may vindicate what a lot of us have been saying for a long time, that Harry Reid would never bring those bills that the House passed up for a vote in the Senate for fear they might pass. Oh, there's no doubt that most of the legislation that we passed out of the House with a bipartisan majority um, would have passed had it been brought to the House or the Senate floor. It would have passed over a 60-vote filibuster as well. That's the reason Harry Reid didn't bring that legislation before. He was acting as Barack Obama's effective veto. I think the president largely said after the Republicans won the House in 2010 that I don't want to know Congress. We've passed Obamacare. We've passed the stimulus. We've passed the Dodd-Frank financial regulatory bill. Let me continue to expand our government's control over the American economy and Americans as an individual and as families and as communities and just keep Congress off my back. And Harry Reid has largely complied by blocking any progress on any legislation on the Senate floor. And that, that won't, simply won't be the case uh, once Mitch McConnell and Republicans are in charge of the Senate. Well, Tom Cotton, thank you for being with us. Uh, you've done a great job in the House. We're looking forward to uh, seeing you in the, uh, in the Senate in the years to come. And I hope you will be with us on uh, Powerline again. Well, thank you all for having me. And thanks for the great journalistic work you'll do at Powerline. I read you every day and will continue to do so for the next six years. <laughs> Good to hear. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks again to Senator-elect uh, Tom Cotton for being with us. And now, as Monty Python used to say, for something completely different, um, there, there's so much news these days you can't keep track of. There are so many scandals you can't keep, keep track of them all. And one of the astonishing headlines of the day was the revelation that 30,000 lowest learner emails have suddenly been discovered. What, what do you make of that? Well, well, I think uh, I want with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Where they were found. They found on a server over at East Anglia University in Britain next to all the ClimateGate emails. That's my first <laughs> suspicion of this. Yeah. I, I think actually they were found on those, you know, disaster uh, backup tapes, which uh, hadn't been recycled or destroyed after all. <laughs> But, you know, there are a couple of witnesses who testified under oath to congressional committees that, that th- these emails are gone, unrecoverable, you know, can't be found, gone forever uh, under oath. You know, I mean, it's, it's got to be a severe embarrassment uh, that the people who are now doing this investigation actually found 30,000 Lois Lerner emails. John, have you ever been involved in a case where one person was the author of as many as 30,000 emails? Or recipient. You know, that's a great question. I was just thinking, you know, this is, we're talking about, what, about a three-year period maybe, I think, generously, 1,000 days, 30 emails a day, you know, uh, you know, seven days a week. Uh, yeah, you know, that's, that, that's doable, but, but it, ought, it ought to account for, I would think, the, the bulk of her email traffic during that time. Well, if you're, I guess if your job is, uh, you know, the, the destruction of a political movement, you're going to be writing more than more lit- emails than your average litigant. Yeah, the other thing is that if you're a senior executive, you get copied out an unbelievable number of emails, which you may in fact have nothing to do with, or, or, uh, or know, uh, know very little about. So what do you think we're going to find when, when we finally get to read the, uh, the 30,000 Lois Lerner emails? What are they going to tell us? I'm skeptical there's going to be anything on them. I, I'll bet um, – I don't know. I'm just at this point very suspicious that they've been scrubbed uh, or that uh, uh, you know, they're going to use Jedi mind tricks on the media. These are not the emails you're looking for. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't, my hopes are not way up about this. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, I think another email story that has been coming out here over the last day or two lends support to that view, Steve, and that is the uh, Judicial Watch lawsuit in which they have been trying to pry loose documents from Eric Holder's Department of Justice for, you know, three years now. It's an endless process, and they finally have gotten court orders that that have required some to be produced. And just a couple of days ago, uh, the Department of Justice produced, I think, about 40,000 pages of of emails, and and various people have have been going through them. But there's there's some, some, uh, you know, rather shocking stuff about uh, about Fast and Furious, and that was the topic of the the, the uh, FOIA request from from Judicial Watch, and and the one that is really striking is from um, uh, Tracy Schmaler, who is Eric Holder's press person at that time, to Eric Schultz. Now, you may or may not remember, but Eric Schultz is the guy who screamed and cursed at Cheryl Atkinson over the telephone. He was a, he was a White House aide at this time. And, and, um, but so, so Schmaler wrote to him, uh, no stories from New York Times, AP, Reuters, Washington Post, NBC, Bloomberg. I'm also calling Cheryl's editor and reaching out to Schieffer. She's out of control. And, of course, everybody's commented on the fact that, you know, it's striking that the Obama administration thinks that reporters are supposed to be under control. I suppose they usually are. 
But that's a that's a pretty pretty striking exchange. Uh, yeah, usually you're, uh, if you're a liberal, you're supposed to count on the media to know what to do without instruction. Um, and so they are shocked when someone departs from the reservation, especially someone in one of the established organizations like CBS. This is not supposed to happen. The other thing about this this um, this Judicial Watch uh, treasure trove um, it was really brought to light by a Powerline reader who sent an email that I thought had a very shrewd comment. And, and it struck me, too, when I was going through these emails that this email thread obviously starts in the middle. In other words, the, the part I just read, that's from the first email in the thread. Well, this reference to Cheryl, you know, I mean, obviously, these two have been talking about Cheryl Atkinson in this email thread prior to that particular email it just it starts just out of the blue and if you do a search these are these emails are searchable of course and if you do a search of the whole 40,000 pages of emails for Cheryl or Atkinson you do not find any references to her zero nada zilch except that her name will come up inside newspaper stories when somebody includes a newspaper story in an email. But in terms of Obama administration people talking to each other, this is the only time that her name gets mentioned. And it's in this kind of weird way where it's like you're picking up in the middle of the conversation. And our reader came up with an explanation that I am convinced is right. The reason why you see it in this one email and nowhere else is because the author of the email miss spelled Cheryl Atkinson's name, spelled it S-H-A-R-R-Y-L. And our reader suggests, and again, I think he's right, that what, what this, if you put all this together, what you see is that somebody at the Department of Justice searched this email population for her name and pulled out all the emails that talked about how they're going to try to shut down Cheryl Atkinson's investigation. They were going to call her bosses at CBS. They're going to talk to Bob Schieffer, all the stuff they're going to do to try to quash that investigation. They pulled out all those emails, and the only one that got through, they didn't catch because it didn't show up in their search because the name was misspelled. So I think there's a lot more there. I think that that the lid has been lifted on a cover-up. And an attempt by the Obama administration, both DOJ and the White House, to to squash the only real aggressive investigation that was being done of Fast and Furious by by Cheryl Atkinson. And I think this is a story that, that we're going to be hearing a lot more about. Next, it would be a pity to have a party without the author of The Pity Party. So here he is. So here he is, Bill Fogley. Bill, this is Scott Johnson. Welcome to the second Powerline podcast, and thanks so much for making yourself available for us tonight. A pleasure to be with you. Bill, the name of your book is The Pity Party, A Mean-Spirited Diatribe Against Liberal Compassion, and I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy this summer. I loved it. I'm declaring it one of the top three books for conservatives of this year, 2014. But it's not, a, it's not mean-spirited. It's not a diatribe. It is against liberal compassion. I'll go with you that far. And you open the book, Bill, with you recall the scene of Christopher Reeve at the Democratic Convention that renominated President Clinton to run for the presidency in 1996. Yes. Tell us about that. 
What what were the Democrats up to, and what do you make of that? Bill Clinton had um, won election in 1992 telling Americans that I feel your pain. And sometime during the 90s, his political skill set was such that uh, Democrats certainly, and perhaps Americans generally, came to feel that the President of the United States was our empathizer-in-chief. Um, so the entire um, rhetorical effort of a big three or four day television con- uh, commercial, which is what a modern political convention is, was to um, to convey empathy, to convey sympathy, to elicit compassion, and um, perhaps the uh, sort of um, outer limit of this was reached when the uh, quadriplegic uh, actor Christopher Reeves was brought on stage um, to give a brief speech calling for uh, greater federal funding for um, research into spinal injuries, holding out the hope that um, the people who suffered from afflictions like his could lead a a, a, a higher quality of life and ultimately even um, walk again and be fully recovered. Um, And the point I make at, at the very outset of the pity party is that such a speaker in such a rhetorical setting simply overwhelms anything resembling logic or empirical evidence or uh, a, a reasonable assessment of competing national priorities. There is no way to simply argue with that. And this is the, the kind of emotional tidal wave that the uh, devotees of the politics of compassion uh, like to resort to whenever and wherever they can. You say somewhere towards the outset of the book that you you quote Barack Obama as saying that kindness defines his politics or something to that effect, I think, from the audacity of hope. What's so funny about peace, love and kindness? Uh, Yes, his uh, I think the exact quote, which he uh, in turn um, cribbed from the uh, another Chicago and the late film critic Roger Ebert is that kindness covers all my political principles. Um, what I think is, uh, this is, this book is not, as you note, truly mean-spirited. It is not even, I would say, anti-compassion. I think compassion is a good thing, not a bad thing. I think it is uh, an indication that, um, uh, that nature means for people to... Uh, to be friends and to care about one another, but it is uh, to, to to ask it to bear more weight than it can, to make it settle more political questions than it's built to do. Uh, does us no uh, good? Does compassion itself no real credit? Um, Kindness is a poli- or at least a political ideal, but there are many other competing ones, and that, that have to be considered alongside it. The self, the sustaining the republic, uh, justice, uh, inalienable rights, and to say somehow that all of these can be trumped by compassion, which seemed to be one of the messages, for example, from the president's speech just last night about immigration, is no way to govern a country. 
If I can back up for just a second and go back to 1996, Bill, if I'm I'm speaking from memory, but my recollection is that the Republican convention that year, which nominated Bob Dole, also featured a kind of tear fest. Uh, It seemed to me like anticipating what the Democrats had in store. And they, they brought up Elizabeth Dole to talk about Bob Dole's incredible life, which the more one becomes familiar with it really does elicit tears of admiration and and, uh, pain for what he went through. But it occurred to me at the time, and even more so in retrospect, that we can't, uh, Republicans can't compete with Democrats on the ground of compassion. And that that seems to me one of the themes of your book. I don't want to jump to the end, but what do Republicans have to offer when when Democrats are eliciting the pity, the compassion, calling on the kindness uh, in, in the way that you're talking about, both in 1996 and as we're recording this last night after President Obama's immigration speech? Um, yes, you're right about Bob Dole and the 1996 Republican convention. The, the GOP was trying to play catch up there. Um, the late journalist uh, Michael Kelly, who was uh, killed in the early days of the uh, Iraq War, was was kind of a, a, a fan of Bob Dole, and he uh, he followed him around during the '96 campaign and said, um, "You know, this is sort of a hopeless situation. You've got uh, Bill Clinton who feels your pain, and Bob Dole who comes off like a guy who doesn't even feel his own pain." <laughs> and, <laughs> um, I, I think that. Uh, uh, Republicans, conservatives, in reply to the to the framework that liberals offer of um, uh, of compassion, of the politics of kindness, um, so the, whether all we can do will be enough is a is a hard question. I don't know the answer to that, but at the very least, we must do all we can do, and I think all we can do is to say that. Um, uh, compassion demands of us a um, uh, the, the justice demands of us. Let us say a, a a more rigorous, a more expansive view of the situation. Uh, to to take um, to, to go back to the president's uh, immigration speech, um, a, a couple of points. Uh, one is that um, compassion. Th- the practitioners of the politics of kindness are. Um, dangerously convinced of their own righteousness. And being so, they show an impatience and even a kind of contempt for the... uh, the, the structures of constitutional government, the division of powers, checks and balances, um, these kinds of things we, we see frequently when, when uh, the, the constitutional architecture in a, in a way is not really built so much to protect us from bad guys, mean guys and tyrants. It's, it's it, the real danger it wants to guard us against is do-gooders, people who are convinced of their own righteousness. Uh, Compassion makes people convinced that the barriers to their uh, moral vision are are small-minded trivialities that simply ought to be overcome by by the sort of moral force of their argument. And the second point that I think that conservatives should make in general, and that is a specific of um, uh, that, that relates to last night's address, is that um, one of the defects of compassion is that it tends to focus on the suffering right in front of us. And it makes us 
indifferent to second and third order effects. It was. It seems like it was only a, a year or so ago that, that President Obama was giving lots of speeches talking about how growing income inequality was the defining issue of our time. It's impossible to uh, work through the syllogisms by which you in, uh, conclude that a good thing to do about growing income inequality is to make it easier for millions of poor people from around the world to come here and bid down the price of wages. Bill, one of the themes of your book is that the politics of kindness and compassion threatens our form of government, and that's just what you're talking about mm-hmm. here with respect to the pity party. Um, you argue throughout that liberal compassion is shot through with illogic, and, and you also illustrated that in your comment just now. Is there anything else you want to say about the illogic of the, the politics of kindness? Well, I would, I would say that uh, one of the themes of the book is that um, even judged by its own standards, liberalism performs poorly. Um, this, I think, is, is um, one of the great sort of uh, um, paradoxes of the situation. Liberals, uh, let us take them at their word. I, a, a lot of conservatives... Um, try to win the, the fight by, by sort of choosing the starting point. And they say, well, conservative, uh, liberals claim they're compassionate and they really care. But in fact, we know that liberals, what they really want is to run things, to uh, gain power. If they're involved in the social services, then it's really a scam to, uh, to um, uh, grow rich off of welfare state transfers and this kind of thing. Um, to be part of the poverty industrial complex, you know. Let's if we take liberals at their word as people who really do get up every morning thinking about there's too much suffering in the world. What can I do to stop it? Then we face the paradox that we have this enormous uh, social welfare is the big thing government does now. What the Office of Management and Budget calls human resources programs, just at the federal level, accounts for almost $2.3 trillion. Um, you add in the state and local government programs of a similar nature, you get you run up the tab to over $3 trillion, nearly $10,000 per man, woman, and child in America. And yet the poverty rate for half a century now has been trapped in the same narrow range, the very low uh, double digits. You would think that if liberals are good to their word, they would um, care about nothing more than making sure this, this vast machinery they've built is really working optimally, that we are helping the people who need it most, that we are not squandering resources on people whose needs are much less acute, that good programs continue, that bad ones are reformed or dropped, but nothing like this seems to be the case. The, the FDR argument from 82 years ago about bold, persistent experimentation implies that things that don't work are set aside, but that never seems to be the reality. And I think that uh, um, the, the, the compassion, in a way, that is uh, the, the sort of internal logic of it explains a lot of this. The, the word itself comes from the Latin. It means literally to suffer together, which means that because of your suffering, your sickness, your hunger, your homelessness, I feel bad and I have a sort of skin in the game now. I have an emotional reason, a self-regarding reason to want to do something. But the real danger here is that um, um, when we've done something 
whether or not it works, if I feel better, it's very tempting to say, well, we've checked that box off the list. On we go to the next thing. Hmm. We're, t- we're talking with Bill Vogley, author of The Pity Party, published earlier this month, November 2014. Bill, we all feel like we're inundated with liberal bullshit. Hmm. But, but you, I think you title a, a chapter of the book uh, in, that, in, that, in that name, and you give philosophical content to the term liberal bullshit. Where does that fit in with what we're talking about? It is, uh, I would say, central to this question of what we're talking about. The uh, chapter title is How Liberal Compassion Leads to Bullshit. Um, the derivation of the term comes from a, a slender little book that uh, was published about a decade ago by the uh, Princeton philosophy professor Harry Frankfurt, titled simply, On Bullshit. Um, and hit Frankfurt's argument is that... Um, what makes bullshit bullshit is not that it's false, it's not that it's factually inaccurate, but that it's phony, that it's more concerned about sincerity, about the speaker's internal emotional um, uh, connection with the listener than it is with objective reality out there in the world. His book is limited to what we would call descriptive statements, but I... I expand his argument, and I hope I don't do violence to it, by including the bread and butter of political uh, discourse, which are prescriptive statements. And I say that um, what makes bullshit bullshit in the political context is if we say – if we program X will solve problem Y, and then we become indifferent to the efficacy that's in the middle of that if-then statement, then we're engaging in a kind of uh, bullshit. We're, we're, we're talking about problems as if we want to solve them, but in fact, we just want to do something about them rather than accomplish something. Very different things. Yeah, let me, it's Steve. Uh, Bill, let me stick in for a minute and uh, make sure that we're clear that uh, – the bullshit of the Frankfurt School is different than Frankfurt's bullshit, right? Or is there an overlap there? I, this, is, this is not the uh, – uh, Frankfurt School is uh, a, a separate problem that we do not get into in the pity party, yes. Right, okay. Well, oh, excuse me. I've, I've been sick all week, so I'm still coughing once in a while. But let me uh, follow up a little bit on uh, the uh, – uh, I don't know what you call the compassion gap between the liberals and conservatives, which you rightly say can't be closed. I mean, they will always outcompete us on compassion. Mm-hmm. The same reason they'll always outbid conservatives or Republicans uh, on a welfare state measure, which is why uh, you know compassionate conservatism is really just the newest version of low budget liberalism, which is never a winner, right? You're always going to go with high budget liberalism when you're offered that choice. Uh, but as you also point out, uh, you know all the arguments you make are absolutely correct. I'm in heated agreement with every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you start out the book by observing, uh, they'll always be overwhelmed, if you're trying to argue this with American voters, uh, by trotting out Christopher Reeve once again. And then, you, you know, you look like a heartless, uh, you know, mean-spirited person, right? Uh, so I'm intrigued in your last chapter where uh, you suggest, least I think I've read it very quickly, uh, that what we ought to do is uh, maybe call their bluff, right? Uh, I'm rephrasing the way I'm, I read your argument. Mm-hmm. Call their bluff, and let's get, abolish the welfare state and go straight to a transfer state instead. You, you talk about the Charles Murray's plan. I wonder if you could dilate that a bit more uh, yeah. for us. Yeah. Um, let me let me take, try to take a running start on that. Um, uh, I, I think that um, there's a practical um, – as, as grim as the situation 
is politically that we all agree that um, uh, that the party of of more benefits and more compassion will always have a sort of uh, built-in advantage over the party of uh, austerity and caution and um, inalienable rights. I think there are a couple of, especially in the American context, uh, uh, important uh, things to note here. Uh, one is that um, it's, we're, we're now 30 years and a couple of weeks past Ronald Reagan's defeat of Walter Mondale in the 1984 presidential election. It's clear that that remains a a traumatic experience for American liberals. You had um, a well-qualified Democratic candidate who said, elect me and I'll raise your taxes, and he got crushed. And so ever since then, Democrats have been trying to make the argument that we can do all sorts of wonderful things. We can... um, cure diseases, we can extend health insurance to everyone, and that we can do them um, on the cheap, Uh, that new efficiencies or taxes that will only affect the top 2% or 3% of the income distribution will be fully adequate to the tax. This is, the the math never, ever, ever works. But what what you see here, I, I think is interesting and politically important, is that unlike European social democrats, who feel confident enough in their different political situation to go to the voters and say, look, here's our package deal. Higher taxes on everybody, a value-added tax. Your your take-home pay is going to go way down, but we're going to have this big bundle of generous benefits. And the net effect of all of this will be that your quality of life is much higher. American liberals, even now, even with the two uh, victories of Barack Obama, are completely terrified of making such an argument. So although going back to to Christopher Reeve, yes, he gave a speech, everybody wept and, and said how wonderful it was, but the, um, the increased funding uh, that he had in mind was much thing to develop. Um, so I think that uh, conservatives have... Um, have some practical uh, uh, considerations on their side, which is to say, you know, um, all of this stuff costs money. And if if you Democrats ever find the language and the courage to go to the American people and say something like what the European Social Democrats do, we will um, we will disagree with you. But we still th- will stay, think that your um, your your project is at least it makes fiscal sense. The numbers add up. Uh, we'll say it's a bad thing to do, but at least it's a coherent thing to do. But as it is, the idea that we can have um, Sweden's um, welfare state, but um, Idaho's tax system is never going to fly. That that's completely um, off the charts. And and so that's where I, I think, in that sense, this gets us to the Charles Murray argument in his book "In Our Hands," which I I, I don't quite fully endorse in the pity party, but urge generous consideration for careful uh, reflection by conservatives um, one of the virtues of it by pairing by simplifying 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 the welfare state um, Murray calls for getting rid of the entire list of nearly every social welfare program going back to the Social Security Act of 1935 Medicare Social Security Medicaid federal aid to education he has an appendix and it goes on for pages of all the things he's going to get rid of instead of a, a direct um, uh, negative income tax. Milton Friedman advanced the same idea in capitalism and freedom in the early 60s. Um, One of the things it does by simplifying it, it 
poses to the American people the, the, the question in the most basic terms. You want to do something about poverty. How much do you want to do something about poverty? You're, the taxes you impose on yourself are going to have a direct relationship to the benefits you confer. When you make things complicated, um, you you aid when you uh, have this proliferation of programs and dollars. And as I explained in, in a book I wrote uh, some four years ago, about which Powerline has also been very generous, never enough. Um, when you when you to use a Buckley phrase, when you blacken the sky with crisscrossing dollars, which is what you, a complicated welfare state does, then you create a situation where everybody can uh, entertain the implausible idea that they can somehow be net importers of federally rearranged dollars, a finite sum of them. That's well, it turns out only West Virginia can do that when Robert Byrd is around, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Paul, no, I, Mirengo- Paul Mirengoff here. Hi, Paul. Hi. Um, you start. We started the interview as apparently you start the book in, in 1996, but let's jump to 2000 and 2004. Yeah. Um, George Bush didn't. Uh, George Bush played the compassion game. He didn't try to outbid the Democrats, Al Gore, and and, and so forth. But but he did uh, make a very uh, strong point that he was a compassionate conservative in order to reassure the American people that he you know he was not a Republican to be feared. That he that he too felt their pain. Um, and, of course, he's the only um, Republican since Bill Clinton entered the scene to win a national election. So w- what do you make of, of his success and his use of compassion, compassionate conservatives as a political proposition? Obviously, he turned out that he believed he believed what he was saying and, and it had consequences. But from a political standpoint, doesn't his lesson teach us that we the Republicans need to stay in the pa- compassion game? I think Republicans uh, need to uh, um, address their vulnerability there and not pretend that it can be uh, simply ignored or or walk away from it. Um, uh, So I think he was certainly right about that. Recall that he was uh, beginning his run for presidency um, uh, in 1999, it would have been, just in the wake of Newt Gingrich's um, um, upheaval, the, the, the the tough four years where Gingrich had been Speaker of the House and had been sort of the, um, uh, uh, whereas Reagan had been a, a, a Teflon president, Gingrich was a Velcro speaker. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, he was, um, and, and so all of the charges about hard-heartedness and, and cruelty um, uh, that that sort of deflected off of Reagan stuck to Gingrich and gave the Republican who wanted to run for president in 2000, any Republican, a real challenge. So uh, this was a political problem, and and Bush's uh, solution um, had some intriguing ideas and some merit. Um, what made um, uh, compassionate conservatism cons- compassionate was that it uh, in, in a way that is uh, in some way similar to the um, to the reform conservatives who are active um, um, this year and are putting mm-hmm. out books and articles um, that it, it sort of uh, takes the idea that conservatives um, need as a practical electoral matter but also in, in a sense as, as, as a broader moral matter to have Something more to say to Americans who feel economically vulnerable, um, who are worried about their jobs, the, uh, the security of their houses, whether their kids will be able to go to college, all of these things. Uh, it, it won't do for conservatives to have nothing more 
to offer than a list of all the things the government must not do to address that problem, lest constitutionalism be undermined. Um, and I think that what made compassionate conservatism um, uh, conservative was that uh, Bush emphasized it in, in, the, in a manner befitting a um, an adult convert to um, Methodism that um, that he wanted the government to be a facilitator in its um, uh, dealings with the poor and the needy uh, to not simply uh, treat their uh, their direct sufferings, but to sort of help the uh, faith-based organizations to work on the entire person. Um, he, uh, he said in the speech where he announced his candidacy and introduced and dwelled on the idea of compassionate conservatism that I've seen the culture change once in my lifetime, and I know it can change again. So I, I think uh, if you were to sort of make the best case for it, compassionate conservatism um, in, in its ideal form was supposed to um, find a way for the federal government through its poverty programs to be a catalyst that would uh, not keep people uh, generationally on welfare and in housing projects, but would um, turn lives around, turn hearts around. Um, and um, and I, it, it, was, it was a recognition that... that um, the, the sort of liberal welfare state, um, in a sense, was too um, uh, it w was condescendingly indulgent of people in ways that were harming the beneficiaries. They, uh, Mark Stein has a nice phrase that um, uh, the trouble with the welfare state is not that it's a waste of money, but that it's a waste of people. That it it easily traps people in it, it makes poverty respectable sustainable, um, tolerable, and people um, who respond to the wrong set of incentives make nothing of their lives. Where I think, uh, just to sum up, uh, close out uh, the compassion and conservatism, where I think it never quite uh, came together. And, and you know, you, you have to write a counterfactual history of the, the George W. Bush presidency, if 9-11 never happened, presumably um, compassionate conservatism would have been fleshed out and would have made more sense. We'll never quite know what that was. But I, I, I don't think there was ever a way to solve the fundamental problem, which was George Bush was running to be president. He wasn't running to be Billy Graham. And the idea that we want, a, even we conservatives, um, want a president who has this sort of role as a moral leader, I think is... Um, highly unsettling um, and implausible. And so I think that even if they'd had the absolute maximum chance to sort of spell out how this would have worked in practice, we never would have solved that contradiction. Interestingly, in his, uh, what I guess amounts to his memoirs, the book uh, uh, Decision Points, I think it's called, Bush never mentions compassionate conservatism. <laughs> Bill, I think that's a perfect place to wind up. With respect to the pity party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion, thanks so much for making yourself available for us tonight. Best of luck pleasure. with the book. Thanks, guys. Well, to wrap up uh, this week's uh, Powerline episode, let's go around the horn. Uh, Paul, uh, wh what was your favorite uh, moment in the news over the past week? 
Well, I'm going to be abusive and come up with two because I think they're both priceless. The, the first one was a former aide to uh, Representative Gutierrez, who's been leading the charge on amnesty for years, explain why uh, it was actually Congress, not the president, who's acting unconstitutionally with respect to the executive orders. And her theory was that the Constitution says that Congress shall pass, uh, shall pass laws, and Congress hasn't passed an immigration law. And therefore, it's Congress, not the president, that's violated the Constitution. I, I kind of got a kick out of that. <laughs> which yeah. is moronic, which is moronic <laughs> in several ways. I mean, one of them being Congress has, in fact, passed all kinds of laws about right. immigration. The administration right. just doesn't like them. Right, right. And the, the other one, though, um, it w was um, related to the Bill Cosby, uh, this kind of sad Bill Cosby episode. Uh, Eugene Robinson, who is easily the worst columnist on the Washington Post and maybe the worst columnist in America, his column on the subject was subtitled, How Could Television's Good Guy Be a Bad Guy Too? It, it, it's hard. I can't figure out how it could possibly be. And, and how did the guy who play? How did one guy who plays Superman die, uh, and, and the other one get become a, a a cripple? I mean, I just I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. It's a puzzle, <laughs> Steve. Steve, how about you? Yeah, well, you know that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm right with Paul in thinking Eugene Robinson is the weakest columnist uh, ever. Uh, and uh, I don't know, maybe, I, I have a suggestion for Robinson. I mean, maybe the answer to that question is, well, uh, uh, maybe Bill Cosby's career isn't over yet. We can cast him in a remake of Breaking Bad, you know, about this <laughs> cuddly, warm, fuzzy educator who uh, you know, morphs into a rapist or something. I, I, that, looks very, that looks very bad for Cosby, I think. Uh, uh, you know, I keep uh, going back to this agreement that Clinton, uh, Clinton uh, that Obama has made with China about greenhouse gas emissions, and it's been widely observed that it's uh, uh, on. It, it doesn't amount to anything. It's uh, China is going to do what they were going to do anyway, uh, and we're committing uh, ourselves unilaterally to more, uh, 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 you know, economically counterproductive policies here at home. Uh, I, I have thought for a very long time, for ten or fifteen years now, that the smart play for China was someday to come along and say, "Oh, we'll agree to something." to sucker the Americans uh, into uh, tilting the playing field towards uh, China further than it already is in certain ways. And I think that's what they've just done. And, uh, you know, I think we already uh, had doubts about Obama's ability to negotiate anything, especially uh, an agreement with Iran about their uh, nuclear weapons program. Uh, and if the China agreement is any uh, indication, we're about to get – if we get an agreement at all, it's going to be a really bad one with Iran. And I think we've got to keep our eyes on this China business, and I think that's something Republicans and the new Congress need to get out ahead of. Scott, how about you? John, I'm thinking of uh, a quote that really belongs in your Loon of the Week feature from Hinderack Award Experience. Sheila Jackson Lee uttered it, and it relates – both to Bill Vogelie's theme of a liberal compassion in his book, The Pity Party, and the immigration story of this week. Her case for what Obama was about to do was that with respect to our immigration law, we can't be selfish. We've got to open those borders up. And uh, what can you say? <laughs> it's kind of an argument stopper. So... <laughs> Uh, I, 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 so wish I, had thought, <laughs> I wish I thought to take it up with Bill Vogley, but uh, I'll offer that one. All right. And with that, uh, we will say good night and thanks for listening. Powerline is a production of PowerlineBlog.com. John Hinderocker, Scott Johnson, Paul Mirengoff, Stephen Hayward, Joseph Malchow, 
and produced by Madison McQueen in association with Ricochet.com. 